In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Boricua. But Boricua is more than a name for a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure no matter where it may lead, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. And you can experience all that warm, welcoming, passionate culture set in a tropical island paradise without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens or permanent residents. Learn more about how you can live Barigua at discoverpuertorico.com. In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Barigua. But Barigua is more than just a word to identify a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. In Puerto Rico, you can experience a tropical paradise with world-class beaches. You can immerse yourself in the rich 500-year history of Old San Juan, where there are stunning forts, classic town plazas, and iconic monuments. You can indulge in a foodie paradise with renowned restaurants, seaside kiosks, and an innovative cocktail scene. And you can take in an abundance of natural wonders like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. national forest system, all without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more about the warm culture of Puerto Rico and how you can live Boricua at discoverpuertorico.com. I'm Aislinn Green, and this is Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks one tricky topic in travel each week. And this week, we're unpacking climate change and travel and a whole bunch of other stuff with none other than Rick Steves. I'm sure you know of Rick Steves. He's been around for decades. Most people adore him. He has dozens of shows, a podcast of his own. But funny story, I kind of grew up with Rick. I was born and raised in Washington State, not far from his headquarters in Edmonds, Washington. And my grandparents, who were both huge travelers, were big Rick Steves fans from the moment he set up shop. So growing up, we had the Rick Steves backpacks, the whole family, the Rick Steves money belts, And yes, the Rick Steves guidebooks. So I took him for granted. I didn't think of him much beyond like, okay, yeah, he's the Europe guy and I have his money belt. But as an adult traveler who works in the travel industry, I've come to see Rick in a different way. I've seen him as an activist, as a thoughtful pilgrim and a scholar of the world, as someone who encourages people to leave their comfort zones and revel in the wonders of the world. And I see him as an environmentalist who wanted to find a way to reconcile his push for travel with the issues around travel and climate change. So he came on the show to talk about his climate smart commitment, which is essentially a self-imposed carbon tax. See, for every traveler his company takes to Europe, they pledge $30 to a variety of very carefully selected nonprofits. We're going to be hearing more about the program in next week's episode, but this week we're just going to hear from Rick. Our conversation was wide-ranging, it was surprising, we touched on climate change, flying, dual narrative travel, borders, and so much more. Let's listen in. Well, Rick, welcome to Unpacked. 
Nice to be with you. So we're going to be unpacking climate change and travel, which is a topic that's, you know, really near and dear to our hearts here at Afar. We've spent a lot of time discussing it. I believe that you have as well. And when we speak with Craig Davidson, your COO, we're going to be learning about your climate smart commitment. But for right now, I'd love to just focus on the more personal side of it because I really admire your ethical approach to the world. So why is climate change so important to you? Well, it's a big deal for everybody, or it should be. It's just some people are tuned into it and some people aren't. And uh, whether you're in travel or not, it should be of a concern. And I think, you know, (laughs) slowly we're waking up, but it's it's time to blow some whistles and, and get people going on this. And of course, I'm in the travel business, and that's the big white elephant in the travel industry. We're all excited about travel. We all love the world. We're all environmentalists and so on. But we all make money by taking people on the road. And, uh, you know, we're, we're contributing to the problem. So uh, we have to decide what are the ethics of travel in a warming world. What was the thought process in your mind that eventually led to this very concrete program? Well, we've been looking around for a solution to how can we be an ethical tour organizer for more than 10 years. And, you know, we've been trying different things. For a couple of years, we were buying trees. Somebody told us it cost two bucks a tree. And if you buy six trees, that'll mitigate the carbon cost of flying to Europe and back. Well, okay, you know, take 100 people, that's 600 trees, and we're all good. But that just felt a little too easy. Yeah. Uh, And then there's a lot of uh, developed world corporations just buy into carbon offsets. And we looked into that, and I just didn't like a broker and investing in a rich company in a rich world. I wanted to connect with the developing world. And I believe that climate change is an existential threat to much more than tourism. I mean, to our our way of life, to, to civilization. And from a Gaia point of view, you know, Maybe human beings are just a rash on this planet and it's time for us to get out of the way. And, uh, you know, we're doing a good job of that. But I don't like to think in that terms. I like to think that this is a, this beautiful planet we're blessed with is, is uh, something we can be good stewards of. And to me, I just wish there was a, a way that we could very confidently and assuredly and honestly pay for our carbon. And that's what we're looking for. Yeah. And I think that we contribute to climate change. There's no doubt about that. There is climate change. There's no doubt about that. And it's got to be dealt with better now than later. There's no doubt about that. But there's also a real value in travel, more than vacation. I'm I'm all over having a good vacation on the road. <laughs> but, but over the years, I find myself um, mixing in being a tourist, being a traveler, and being a pilgrim. And... Uh, you know, when you get out, you get to know more about the world and, and you, you fall in love with the world and you have an empathy and a better understanding of the uh, 96% of humanity that's outside of our borders. And coming out of COVID, I'm pretty convinced that the um, challenges confronting us in the future are going to be blind to walls and conventional weaponry. And they're going to require a respect for the environment and an ability to work with other nations. The challenges that we're going to be dealing with, whether it's a pandemic or climate change, it can't be a win-lose thing. It's got to be win-win. If you win north of the border and people are losing south of the border, it'll just blow over the border and we're all in trouble. So we need to be smart about this and we've got to work with a globalized community. And we do that through travel. A long-winded way of saying travel is an important part of the equation for us to be 
sustainable on this planet. We need to know each other. The trend lately is to build walls and, and hunker down and treat everybody as a threat. But um, that's a prescription for all sorts of problems down the road. I, I really think the beautiful thing about travel is you bring home the most wonderful souvenir. And that's the mindset where you're more inclined to build bridges and less inclined to build walls. So that's the plus of travel. And I think it's a responsibility, kind of a stewardship responsibility, if you're going to spend the time and the energy and, and contribute to environmental problems by your travels, you need to maximize the value of your travels. Why do a billion Muslims aspire to go to Mecca once in their lifetime? It's important to get out of your home and see the rest of the world. That's what Muhammad was all about. He said, don't tell me how educated you are. Tell me how much you've traveled. And progressive Muslims say, you don't need to go to Mecca. You just got to get go on a trip, get away from your home mm -hmm. and think about it. And I'm I'm similar to that in my own philosophy of road as church or or you know road as school. We learn so much more about our home by leaving it. So we need to maximize the benefit of our travel by traveling thoughtfully, and we need to pay our way. We need to pay our carbon costs. Now, if you don't believe in mitigation, well then, you know, forget what I'm going to say. <laughs> but for me, mitigation is just arithmetic. You create X bad, okay, you can not create X bad, or you can create X good in a way that zeroes out the bad. And that's kind of what mitigation is. So I believe the scientific reports that I've read that explain if you smartly invest $30 in climate change action, that creates as much good as one individual flying from the United States to Europe and back creates. So our program, the Climate Smart Initiative, it's nothing to brag about. It's just baseline ethics. It's just we're making too much money on our tour program when we take 20 or 30,000 people to Europe in one year. We should be paying the cost, which is $30 smartly invested per person. And then, again, it's nothing heroic. For me, it's just if we had an honest accounting system in this country of ours, we'd be taxed for that. And then it would be invested smartly because that's a cost to society. That's a cost to the future. That's a cost to the whole world when we contribute to climate change. But we live in a world here in the United States where it's all about the quarterly profit statement. So we need to give ourselves a self-imposed tax to pay for our carbon. Mm -hmm. And that's what we do. So each year, we multiply the number of people that take our tour by $30. This year, for instance, we're taking 30,000 people on Rick Steves tours. Multiply that by $30. It's $900,000 rounded up to a million dollars. We have a portfolio of 10 organizations, uh, nonprofits working with farmers in the developing world to help them do their work while contributing less to climate change. Mm -hmm. And we invest in them $100,000 each on average, these 10 organizations, and we love it. It's a cool program. And uh, it's just part of a new I think, awareness of how can we travel ethically in a warming world. Yeah, absolutely. So the flight shame movement kind of emerged in 2017, and then it really took off in 2019 when, you know, activist Greta Thunberg kind of took that intentional two-week sail instead of flying. Right. Was yeah. that something, like, what was your initial reaction to that? And did that spark this thinking for you? Well, flight shame to me doesn't mean taking a boat. It means not traveling. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And that's, that's, that's an option. I yeah. mean, it's not practical that people are going to take a boat. It'd be nice if they would. But, you know, I'm a little more pragmatic. And, uh, you know, you can choose not to travel. That's a very 
reasonable decision. Mm -hmm. But I believe that if you travel and you pay for your carbon and the travel makes you a citizen of the planet, a global citizen. I've been, I've been dealing with the ethics of travel long before there was climate change. I've been teaching for 40 years and I struggled with this back in the last century. And it was a, it was an ethical issue of when there's so much hunger, why should I spend five years wages for a struggling family to go to the, the Nile or to go to India or to go to Guatemala and take photographs of idyllic scenes at the well with women with jugs on their heads, you know? Mm -hmm. You can romanticize that. <laughs> but I know that there's a lot of uh, economic injustice in the world. Yeah. And I struggled with this before there was climate change, just the ethics of travel. And I talked to a lot of people, did a lot of thinking about it. And I concluded, if you want to be an ethical travel, you have an ethical responsibility if you want to travel to come home with a broader perspective and employ that broader perspective in the voting booth. Mm. Who wins our election impacts people south of the border yeah. more than it even impacts you and me. But what a weird sensibility to take into the voting booth to vote for something other than your own self-interest. <laughs> Yes. You know, but an enlightened, thoughtful traveler does exactly that. I vote routinely for uh, causes and candidates that are not in my self-interest. I just do it because I've I've been exposed to the world and I'm thoughtful. And you're also, or the the organizations that you work with are involved with lobbying the U.S. government. Is that correct? Yeah. I'm a big fan of advocacy. Yeah. I mean, advocacy organizations don't like to call themselves lobbyists, but that's what they are. Yeah. You know, lobbying in itself is not bad. And you can lobby for uh, government policies that are more smart and, and, and compassionate uh, for people who are hungry domestically and or internationally. You could lobby for carbon tax. And what we're doing is what I've, my major philanthropic thing is, um, supporting advocacy organizations that fight hunger because 10% of humanity is in extreme poverty, mm -hmm. trying to live on less than $2 a day. And that's hopeless. And my philosophy is even if you're not a love your neighbor kind of person, if you know what's good for you, you don't want to be filthy rich in a desperately poor country. <laughs> you know, it's just not a nice place to raise your kids. You want stability, you better fight hunger. Um, and I think we're going to come wake up to the fact that if you want stability, you better fight climate change because we get all crazy and freaked out about immigrant problems. We don't know what immigration problems are yeah. until we get hundreds of millions of climate refugees. That's coming our way. Yeah. This is just the first couple of drops. And a lot of the people trying to get in our country are the first of the climate refugees. They have not been able to make it on their land. They've gone into the cities where it's too dangerous. And they realize the only place we can go is north to the United States. I think that's an impact of climate change that a lot of people don't recognize. So, you know, this is very complicated stuff. But I think if we can raise awareness and be smart about it, there's a reasonable solution. But we have to get serious about minimizing our carbon and then paying for the carbon that we create. You know, it's coming. There's a sensibility in Europe right now that people take the train instead of fly. Mm -hmm. Of course, they got good train system. And why, why would you fly from Madrid to Barcelona when you can 
get there by train in two and a half hours. That's just, you don't need to be an environmentalist to see the wisdom in that. It's just smarter. And it's more pleasurable, right? Like taking it's the train delightful. is such a delight. I love stepping onto the train and <laughs> you know. enjoying the view and stepping off and yeah. not having to go to the airport and everything. Absolutely. And um, it's very green. It's very exciting. And, you know, there's another example. If an American goes to Spain and sees how good their public transit is and how many alternatives there are to fossil fuel, they come home and uh, it creates a different political environment where we can get something done. Yeah, absolutely. I know. If only we had a train system. <laughs> well, yeah. kind of going back to that idea of mitigation, because this is something that we, of course, have also struggled with. And we just did a story about, you know, a climate change reporter who was trying to fly less, not not fly, but fly less. So that's something that we have started to encourage is, you know, be more thoughtful about your trips, go for a longer period of time. Do you also encourage that with your travelers? Well, yeah. And I, but I, I would just encourage that in your everyday adulting decisions. Mm, yeah. Sure. Does it make sense for 50,000 people to fly back to their alma mater for a football game? I mean, the environmental consequence of people flying for sports is really powerful. Uh, the environmental consequence of a needless war yeah. is really powerful. Uh, the environmental consequence of people flying to conventions. We used to fly 100 of our tour guides from Europe to Seattle every, every January for years, for 10 years. So we flew our guides into Seattle for a week-long workshop. Now, because we've learned a lot during the pandemic, we do it with webinars. And, you know, it's a shame that we don't have that personal connection and we We'll probably do it every few years, but you don't need to do it every year. Yeah. So there's moderation in these kind of things. Uh, you know, I, I just really, I spend a lot of energy trying to think of how in our divided society can we not win and defeat the enemy politically, but how can we come up with reasonable solutions that everybody can embrace? So, you know, I know that the aeronautics industry is working on much more efficient airliners. There's huge potential there. Yeah. I know that we can do things now that don't take the environmental cost or just the economic cost. Of, we spent a lot of money flying 100 guides into Seattle and putting them up for a week. Uh, you can just have a webinar. I mean, when I pay for my Zoom webinar license, I do it with, with giddiness. It's just <laughs> a, a beautiful alternative to flying people here, you know. So, you know, there's ways to really cut back on the carbon cost of our travels, whether it's domestic, for work, for entertainment, or exploring the world. Yeah. There's ways to cut back on that. And then when we get over there, there's ways to travel in a way that minimizes. But I really believe that when we come home, we need to be changed by our travels. I, I love when I'm on the road to be a cultural chameleon. I transform from country to country. And then when I come home, I'm changed also. You know, that reminds me that you've spoken a lot about that kind of dual narrative travel and that that's something that you kind of look for. Will you explain for listeners what you mean when you say that? Yeah, dual narrative travel. You know, I have an appetite for traveling to places that get me out of my comfort zone. And I'm not any big hotshot adventure. I don't go to war zones or anything like that. But I go to places we're generally not supposed to go. And those, when I think back, are my best travel experiences. Yeah, You know, back in the old days, going to the Soviet Union, going to Iran, going to Palestine, going to Cuba. That's where it's at. I mean, to, to get to know your enemies. Yeah. I say that with quotes, but, you know, people are supposed to be our enemies. It's really powerful. 
you realize how ethnocentric our approach to many of the world's great problems are. There are walls, Mm -hmm. physical or metaphorical, that we need to understand. I can't think of a good wall. And uh, a wall keeps people apart. And, uh, you know, when I think about the wall between Palestine and Israel, it was built by the Israelis to protect them from violent incursions by bad guys in Palestine that were going to come in and bomb their buses and so on. Well, okay, let's just say that's a reasonable investment and a reasonable fear on their part. It's a complicated issue, but let's just say that. What was the consequence of that wall? Well, it's made it tougher maybe for people to cross the border with bad intentions. But I think even greater than that, it has kept the young people on both sides of that wall saddled with their parents' fears and their parents' baggage and unable to talk to each other. I I learned that when I was traveling there, uh, scouting my TV show that I did on the Holy Land. My Israeli guide, who is a wonderful guy, Abi, and my Palestinian guide, a wonderful guy named Kamal, it was very, very complicated for them to even find a place where they could park their cars next to each other so I could go from one car to the next. So the whole system is designed so Palestinians and Israelis really can't connect with each other. I mean, you might have a gardener coming across the wall in the morning to garden in your fancy house at a cheap price, and then he'd go back home. But generally, people never broke bread together. Kids didn't play together. They all had their own gated communities or refugee camps, and they played with kids who had the same, whose parents' baggage impacted them. So the the moral to the story is you cannot understand a wall unless you talk to people on both sides of that wall. It's dual narrative travel. When you go to Belfast, now there's dual narrative tours of the wall that separates the Protestant and Catholic communities. And you don't just take a taxi tour with an angry Catholic or an angry Protestant. You take a taxi tour that has two different drivers. And for half of the tour, you're with a Catholic, and for half the tour, you're with a Protestant. And you have quadruple the learning experience. You know, that's a beautiful thing about travel. And that's what I enjoy as a travel teacher is inspiring people to have fun, not spend a lot of extra money, do things efficiently, don't wait in line needlessly, know how to pack, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but um, but also travel in a way where you get out of your comfort zone and travel in a way where you broaden your perspective. Travel in a way where you think of culture shock not as something to avoid, but as a constructive thing. Culture shock to me, I've been thinking about this lately, is the growing pains of a broadening perspective. And it's important culture shock, and it just needs to be curated. So as the tour guide, I get to curate culture shock. I love that. I think it kind of decenters the traveler in the narrative a little bit, right? Like, you're not the most important thing there, right? Like, you know, <laughs> you just nailed it. You just nailed it. My favorite country is India. Oh, yeah. And people don't think of me in India. They think of me in Europe. But, you know, for me, Europe is the springboard for world exploration for an American. Go there. And then if you have a good trip, you can go beyond. But um, my favorite travel experiences are India because India wallops my ethnocentrism. Yeah. I like to say it rearranges all my cultural furniture. Yeah. Because <laughs> even if we're hip people that feel like we, we have this global perspective, we're all ethnocentric. We all think we're the norm, you know. And uh, people with spoons and forks aren't the norm. People who sit on something when they go to the bathroom are not the norm. Hmm. We're the oddballs. 
And uh, we don't realize that unless we travel, and unless we travel to places where there are different norms. And you have to have an appetite for that. For a lot of people, I know as a tour guide, that's not what they want to hear. Hmm. You know, it's not what they want to hear. They they draw back and they clench their fist and they think, are you telling me we're wrong, that we're not the center of the world, that the world's not a pyramid with us on top and everybody else trying to figure it out? <laughs> That people don't aspire to be American. <laughs> what do you say to that? How do you respond? <laughs> I say the world is not a pyramid with us on top. And I thought it was until well into my adulthood. And then I met a, a, a guy in Afghanistan when I was hitchhiking through Afghanistan. I mean, I've got a lot of little anecdotes like this, but I always like to say, I was at a cafeteria in Kabul and this guy sat down next to me. He said, are you an American? I said, yeah. And he said, well, I'm a professor here in Afghanistan and I want you to know that a third of the people on this planet eat, eat with spoons and fork like you. A third of the people eat with chopsticks. And a third of the people eat with their fingers like me. And we're all civilized just the same. I and that. I remember, I can yeah. remember it like it was yesterday, the, the wording. He said, <laughs> and we're all civilized just the same. And he actually, his mission was to wow. sit down at the tourist cafeteria every day at lunch with some sort of an American backpacker and let him know we're all civilized just the same. Absolutely. And talking about climate change and wastefulness, no plastics utensils right. going into yeah. the landfill. Isn't right? that amazing? Yeah. So this is why I enjoy my work so much. Because, yeah. you know, uh, as a tour guide, I spent 25 years with the mic and I had the bully pulpit. The, yeah. the bus is, the door's locked. I got the mic. You're going to listen to me. And I had, I, I, I learned over years um, how you can abuse the bully pulpit. But I also learned the value of travel over the years as my travelers were gradually and artfully having their perspectives broadened through this travel experience. And that's how I would assess the value of my work is what kind of an impact did I have on my travelers? And, you know, Europe is tame for an experienced traveler, but Europe is, is a challenge for a lot of people. And we like to joke where I work. I work with 100 colleagues here in Seattle at Rick Steves Europe. And we joke that our mission is to equip and inspire Americans to venture beyond Orlando. <laughs> you know, and it's not, there's nothing wrong with Orlando or Vegas, but if you've been there six or seven times, why don't you try Portugal? Yeah. It's not going to bite you, you know. And then if you don't like it, you can scurry back to Disney World, you know. But uh, I think there's one book that outsells my Rick Steves Italy guidebook, and it's the guidebook to Disney World. Is it really? Um, yeah, it's there's a it's a huge market and it's escape escape travel. It's La La Land, and for a lot of people, they yeah. don't want anything more than that. I, I like a quote from Thomas Jefferson. He said, "Travel makes a person wiser, if less happy." <laughs> If you're looking for a taste of something new, then I am excited to tell you about Foods That Matter, a new podcast that takes foodies to different corners of the world, unlocking the secrets of the globe's most extraordinary cuisines. Join host and food archaeologist John Robert Sutton, also known as the Indiana Jones of food, on a culinary thrill across the world, where you'll gain deep insights into food culture a better understanding of food origins, and learn how to discover these culinary treasures all on your own. Follow Foods That Matter wherever you listen to podcasts.
You mentioned this evolution from tourist to traveler to pilgrim. Do you think it kind of helped solidify your own evolution as a traveler and as a travel teacher? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. There's just, it's nice to be introspective and thoughtful when you have an experience. And a lot of people, they're raised not to be introspective. They're raised never to write a poem. Yeah. As a tour guide, I used to really stress out my groups by saying on the, on the last day of the tour, we're all going to share a poem that we've written over the next two weeks. <laughs> and everybody had to write a poem. And for some people, it was just a limerick, you know, Yes. <laughs> but other people, they wrote very thoughtful poems and, yeah. and they astounded themselves at how they could be a thoughtful traveler. Yeah. Uh, I just love the thought that, you know, Wordsworth would walk through the the beautiful lakes of Cumbrian Lake District, the great poet Wordsworth, and he'd be inspired by the bird song and the and the blowing clouds and 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 the ripples on the lakes. And you know, we need that. It's good for our soul. It sure is. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. And articulating it, right? Like articulating and articulating it. it. You got it. Because I think that can help kind of make it more concrete within ourselves and allow us to take it home in a different way. Isn't it? Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. And it's raising the bar as a tour guide. I've always been thankful for the caliber of people that choose to work with us. And they are guides that embrace this idea. And it, you know, if you're a tour guide, you're working really hard, you're living on the road away from your home, and you're surrounded by people on vacation mm-hmm. all the time, and, and you're working. And um, it can just be making a buck. Yeah. Or it can be really contributing. And uh, the guides that I'm really blessed to call workmates and colleagues, they have the same mission as me. They have this great opportunity to take a group of wonderful Americans out of their comfort zone yeah. and gently <laughs> curate their culture shock. <laughs> uh, do you still require <laughs> or ask them to write a poem at the end of it? Well, um, <laughs> no, but we... We encourage our guides to create a, a esprit de corps on the bus, a, mm-hmm. a meaningful family atmosphere. And, uh, you know, because you can, everybody can just be very, very superficial and hardly know each other's names. Or we have ref- what we call reflections periods. Mm-hmm. I love a reflections time where you've just been to the concentration camp, Dachau. And you've then you've been to the beer hall. Yeah. And then you've gone to this amazing church, this Wieskirk, the Rococo church in the foothills of the Alps. And then you settle into your fancy chalet in uh, Austria. And before dinner, you spend uh, an hour just moderating the discussion. And the tour guide's now not the teacher, but, but he or she is the moderator. And you just encourage people who are comfortable doing this to talk about emotionally what they've been going through. Yeah. And uh, to be able to orchestrate that is really rewarding. It's a challenge and it's raising the bar for a tour guide, that's for sure. But most tour companies, they tell their guides, just don't talk about religion, politics, or (laughs) soccer. Because those are things that are going to just upset (laughs) people. But I just tell my guides, hey, if you want to if you want to raise the bar, talk about religion, talk about politics, and talk about football, um, but do it yeah. in a respectful way that inspires your Americans to be broader in their thinking. Because, you know, you hear about ugly Americans. Uh, that's a kind of a term we don't hear much anymore, but it's not a bad person, the, the ugly American on the road. It's, it's just Americans tend to be ethnocentric. Yep. 
The ugly American is an ethnocentric traveler who thinks, where's my ice cubes? Why can't I have a bottomless cup of coffee? I need fast <laughs> service. I need the service right now. They're just naive and they're steep on the learning curve. They're good people and they're, they're far from home and they're learning. If you're buried deep in the middle of our country without a passport and your whole world is shaped by the TV channel you choose to watch, what is your worldview? Probably very ethnocentric. Are you afraid? You're probably very afraid. Do you want walls or bridges? You probably want walls, you know? Yeah. What about people who travel a lot? Um, they're not so afraid and they want bridges. I love that. Yeah. Or they know also what to be afraid of, you know, feel like they're afraid of. The, That's a good point. Yeah. They know, know like, what the, what the real risks yeah, are. Exactly. That's the irony. Of not traveling, of not expanding <laughs> yeah, your to me, world. <laughs> if you, the irony is people who want a wall, they, they want a wall in order to be safer. And I firmly believe that a wall does not make you safer. A wall makes your future less stable. But that takes a little more of a attention span for a lot of people to think about. Yeah. You, know, it's, you can't put it on a bumper sticker. And the firsthand experience, the time, you know? Yeah. Firsthand experience. What a concept. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's, that's getting back to our, our conversation about travel. Yeah. That firsthand experience is more and more important. Well, going back to climate change a little bit more broadly, you've had kind of a front row seat to some of the changes throughout Europe and beyond. And I'm just curious to know what you have witnessed oh, in yeah. that capacity. Well, you know, Aislinn, that's something I've wanted to do for ages would be to make some kind of a TV show or travel essay or something that just showed the silly impacts of climate change on privileged people developed world people on their vacations you know yeah. it's it's not like a new dry land in guatemala that's impoverishing formerly well-off farmers it's just skiers you know there's no summer skiing anymore in the alps <laughs> yeah i grew up being fully aware that it's so fun to rent some skis when you're traveling and ride the lift up and ski in the summer well they don't do that anymore now so i can just think of the examples around Europe. In Spain, they used to have bullfights where you could buy tickets in the shade or the sun. Mm. The cheaper tickets were in the sun and the more expensive tickets were in the shade. It got so hot that they moved the bullfights later. And now everything's in the shade. Oh, interesting. I mean, that's just to, to accommodate climate change. I'm going to be flying to Spain next week. And I, I know there's canvas shade panels above the roads, the streets, so pedestrians can uh, actually walk in the street without the sun beating down on them. You know, that's new. You find um, flood barriers now built into the little towns all across South England, little towns that have been there for centuries that didn't used to have the problem of the sea washing up their main street. They've got a flood barrier there. The Dutch, who are famously frugal, are spending billions of euros moving mud and sand to beef up their dikes in anticipation of a rising sea because half of the Netherlands are below sea level. There's a storm surge barrier just outside of Rotterdam that to me, it's like two Eiffel Towers on their side on wheels that can roll shut in the threat of a rising sea. We saw what happened in New Orleans and in New York when you had that storm surge. Yeah. Well, you know, that can happen again. And every, every city is going to need storm surge barriers to survive that. What else? You've got, there's not a ski lift in Europe these days that doesn't have plumbing built in with it. You don't build a ski lift without plumbing because you've got to make your snow. Mm -hmm. River boats are having a crisis, that whole industry, because the water is either too high or too low, and they can't get to where they promised their travelers they're going to get. 
So they have to have buses that follow them. And half of the itinerary is done by bus on a, quote, river cruise. So it's disturbing. I guess people acknowledge there is climate change. And most people acknowledge that humans are contributing to it. But do we have the ability to pay for something now that will help people 10 or 20 years from now? Or do we just want to bully our way through our lives and have our vacations without dealing with the sustainability aspect of it? That's, to me, why we need government action. I'm a great capitalist, but I know that capitalism needs a referee, and that's what governments are for. If we're going to have capitalism in a couple of generations, we need a government to step in now and enforce expensive sustainability issues because human beings by their nature just they want it now yeah it's a very unusual person that can say i will deny myself that now so people two generations from now can have a little bit of it yeah i mean i hear people sometimes people who have children or grandchildren like you did I, i listened to your january presentation i think the one that you were referencing earlier where you instead of flying everyone in and you mentioned right. your your young grandson atlas congratulations mm-hmm. by the way that's an amazing Thank name you. yeah isn't it <laughs> <laughs> and just you know wanting to see him travel allow the world to be in a place and yeah now when i give my talks if I give a talk that's a political talk or an ethical talk, I, I've added a shot of beautiful little baby Atlas, <laughs> Rick Steves' grandson. And then I show a shot of my daughter, Jackie, just adoring her little beautiful mm-hmm. baby. And then I show a shot of a nameless father and infant in uh, South Asia. And I, I make the very important case that that father's love is just as beautiful and important as mine. And that little child is just as deserving and important as mine. And it it makes all the notions that a traveler takes home, it drives them home in a more strong way, in a more undeniable way when you have a grandchild in your arms. Yeah. If it just it should. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> you know, some people they'll just want more walls. I mean, if they got a grandchild in their arms. But uh, I don't I don't think a traveler, a thoughtful traveler, would be inclined to want more walls. They'd want more bridges with a grandchild in their arms. Yeah, more bridges and more government action. (laughs) Yeah, more refereeing, more sustainability. You know, why can't we pay? It's so clear to me. I I spend a million dollars a year to mitigate the carbon that our travelers take when they fly to Europe to meet our tours. It's a million dollars. I could have made that profit, but I'm making too much money. I'm stealing from the future. It should be taxed, yeah. you know, and then invested smartly. But I'm not going to just complain about it. I'm just going to tax it myself and invest it myself. And by the way, what gets done with the investment from our Rick Steves Climate Smart Initiative in these 10 organizations that work in the developing world supporting farmers, it is so exciting what yeah. gets done. It does, it makes a difference, you know, on our website. It's a quite a complicated essay that we've written explaining the whole rationale and the thinking behind the Rick Steves Climate Smart Initiative. And right at the top, it says, if you're a tour operator, steal this program and do not credit us. Don't credit us. I mean, it's, you know, it's just use it. It's innovative. And, I love that. You know, yeah. I think it's good business. One thing, one of my mantras during COVID was I was realizing good business is good business. Yeah. Yeah. 
I like that, you know, because you don't need to compromise your viability as a profit-making corporation to be ethical, Mm-mm. you know, and if you can build uh, your business with a clientele that appreciates your ethics, that's a nice clientele to have. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that you kind of show your work in that way. You know, you're showing the kind of impact yeah. that these programs are having and putting kind of the personal to the problem, I think can really connect with people more than just the larger, like looming yeah. terror of climate change. <laughs> I think there's a hunger for candor and transparency. Yeah. And in our society, there's a hunger for people to talk straight uh, and respectfully about how together we can be constructive and yes. deal with this problem. And that's kind of my, because I'm, I'm really into marketing. I love to market. And just from a straight marketing point of view, it just seems like people go, yeah, thank you for telling me the straight story. You referenced this a little bit, but you spent your whole career kind of encouraging people to travel and does it ever feel like a weight in some of these issues, you know, that kind of sense of responsibility? Or have you made peace with it because of all the things that you've said throughout this last hour? No, I constantly struggle with it. Or not constantly struggle with it. I mean, I don't lose sleep about it, but it's a very important issue. And it frustrates me that there's not some kind of better housekeeping seal or something like that. Some government studied and blessed kind of ordained kind of smart way to pay for your carbon. Because, you know, we we read all these reports and we think we've got it figured out, but there's, maybe there's just not a definitive answer, but I wish the government had a very credible way of saying, if you want to cover your carbon costs, this is how much it costs and this is what you can do. But it needs to be credible. You know, my, my frustration locally with the conventional stuff was we learned about it from brokers, Mm -hmm. brokers who sell carbon offsets Yeah, and their businesses, you know, they may say they're motivated by the environment or altruism, but you know, they're just making their commission off what they sell. And it just was hard to feel it was really credible. But if there was some really accepted and, and clear way that we could understand what is our carbon cost and how can we mitigate it? That would be really great. And we're doing our best right now to do that. And then, as I said, there's two sides to the coin because we need to be empowered to do good by taking home that most beautiful souvenir. And that's a broader perspective. Well put. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And just, uh, I appreciate your sense of responsibility and transparency. Well, thank you, Aislinn. And I I really enjoy it interview where it causes me to try to put the thoughts I'm struggling with into some sort of a smart sort of (laughs) text. And I actually come out of the interview learning more about what I'm thinking than I went into the interview. So that's great. So thanks for uh, raising, you know, raising awareness about this important issue. All hail the mighty Rick. Thank you, Rick, for your time and your thoughts. If you want to learn more about the Climate Smart Commitment, tune in next week as we chat with Craig Davidson, Chief Operating Officer of Rick Steves Europe. We talked more about the very careful selection process for these nonprofits that they donate to, the types of projects that they're involved in, which revolve around farming and education for women and girls, and the questions that they still ask themselves around this whole issue of climate change and travel. It's a great conversation, so be sure you tune in. In the meantime, you can always explore more more at ricksteves.com 
and subscribe to his podcast, Travel with Rick Steves. In our show notes, we'll also link to our own stories about carbon offset programs, flying less, and other climate change issues. See you next week. Ready for more unpacking? Visit afar.com and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Afar Media. If you enjoyed today's exploration, I hope you'll come back for more great stories. Subscribing makes this easy. You can find Unpacked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to rate and review the show. It helps other travelers find it. This season, we also want to hear from you. Is there a travel dilemma, trend, or topic you'd like us to explore? Email us at unpackedatafar.com. This has been Unpacked, a production of Afar Media. The podcast is produced by Aislinn Green and Nikki Galtaland. Music composition by Chris Gollin. And remember, the world is complicated. We're here to help you unpack it. Unpack it.